If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. As we saw last week, that James, in fact, is giving us a series of contrasts of being in two minds. We see that in terms of faith, genuine faith, and demonic faith, in terms of the tongue, speaking blessing as well as cursing. And then he speaks of wisdom from heaven, that which is of the devil. The language seems a bit harsh. I mean, it's one thing to say that this is right and this is wrong. It seems, seems almost wrong to say this is heavenly and this is demonic. This is of the devil. But in fact, that's what we find James saying. So that Abraham had faith, he trusted God and he obeyed and he was called God's friend. On the other hand, in chapter 2, James tells us that, you know, you believe that there's one God, great. So do the demons, and they shudder. So to simply say you believe is, is practically demonic. And then, with regard to the tongue, he talks about the tongue being set on fire from hell. I think we'd all agree we've said things that we regret, but to say that our tongues were set on fire by hell, from hell, that seems a bit harsh. What about wisdom? Well, in chapter 3, verse 17, he talks about the wisdom that comes from heaven. But previously, he speaks of the wisdom that, in fact, is not from heaven, but of earth. It is unspiritual. It is of the devil. It is diabolical. Now, in speaking of genuine or heavenly wisdom, he writes that it is, it comes from heaven, it is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And then he adds at the end of that, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And what are the characteristics of one who is a peacemaker? Well, as we saw last week, if we in fact define peace, shalom, as the way things ought to be, then a peacemaker is in fact a person the way that a person ought to be. Such a person is a peacemaker. That's good. We like that. But now James turns to the issue of earthly wisdom or diabolical wisdom. And he spends much more time on this than he does on heavenly wisdom, which one would say, wish he'd spent more time on the good stuff instead of focusing on the devilish stuff, the diabolical stuff. But he has now come to the third point in his sermon, and that is to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And that is to say, not taking on earthly or worldly wisdom. What James does in chapter 4 is he continues with the results of diabolical or hellish wisdom. Then he traces it to its root, and finally he tells his readers what they are to do about it. And by God's grace, that's what we'll see today. First of all, he deals with the symptoms and the diagnosis of this problem. As we've seen in James's book, he comes at things from a, a from a position, from a place that we would not. Um, 
I mean, he starts out by saying, consider pure joy when you fall into trials of many kinds. It's not the best way I would start off a letter. Uh, or when he's going to talk about caring for those in need, he says, you know, don't show favoritism. And, and again, this is kind of weird. And then when it comes to the tongue, he talks about, you know, those of you who want to be teachers, you need to be careful. Well, now he comes to the issue of earthly wisdom, and he comes to it from a different place, I would say. He backs into the issue. He begins with fights and quarrels, then he turns to ineffectual prayer and speaks of wrong motives. And then he ends with, you are actually God's enemies. Yeah, not what we would expect. Look, if you would, at the first two verses of James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. James begins, when he's talking here of earthly wisdom, of interpersonal relationships between Christians. It's not talking about us versus the world or the world versus us. It's Christian versus Christian. And the language that he uses is quite strong. As one commentator puts it, frighteningly strong. Fights, quarrels, battle, kill. In some ways, the King James is stronger here than the NIV. It uses words like war and fightings. Um, and if you'll bear with me, I will use the language of the King James as I think it better reflects what James intends. After all, fights and quarrels can be seen as relatively insignificant. Oh, I had a quarrel with somebody. Uh, wars and fightings don't give us that option. Now, I think it's apparent that James doesn't mean actual physical killings. But he is using the language of war metaphorically, as do other writers in the New Testament. The noun war and its verb to battle are not used outside of James in a metaphorical sense, except in the book of Revelation, which I find very interesting, that in fact the war of Jesus is against those who corrupt his church. And then in chapter 12, the war of the Lord and his angels with Satan. Fightings and its verb we find more common uh, in the epistles. But the, the fact that it's a metaphor shouldn't take away from the power of his words, the force of his words, and the horror that they intend to strike. War is a terrible thing, and a war has in fact broken out in Israel just the past few days, in which civilians have been killed, civilians have been kidnapped. War is not a thing of beauty. I think living when and where we do, we have lost a proper sense of the horror of war. There are a number of reasons for that, a number of causes. I think one is, in fact, what we see in the movies about war, which ultimately are intended to be entertainment. And the process numb us to the reality of what actually happens. And it sanitizes it and somehow minimizes the violence of war. I don't know if you remember when uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan came out. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but the first five minutes are just brutal. And people complained that Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, that he had sort of overdone the violence. Um, 
War is violent. It is a thing of horror. And that's the word that James uses. So that when he talks about conflicts between Christians, this isn't like, oh, we had a little quarrel, a little spat. Here he's talking about, metaphorically, war. And by the way, when James was alive, when he wrote this, um, they didn't have RPGs, okay? They didn't have sniper rifles. They didn't have airplanes that dropped bombs from thousands of uh, feet up in the air. The killing was done face to face with spears, with swords. The fact that he chooses to use this language, I think really should tell us something. James speaks of the fact of it, the condition of it, and the practice of it. War represents a state of hostility. And fighting is a specific breaking out of antagonism. It isn't something that you hold in. It breaks out as you fight against others. And what is responsible for this? What are the conditions that lead to this fact? Well, the fact is we are at war with ourselves. There's a war within us that then breaks out as we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think that James is saying the conflict within ourselves. And the conflict within ourselves is, should I do this, should I do that? Is, should I do the right thing, should I do the wrong thing? I don't think he, that's the conflict he sees as breaking out into our dealings with our fellow Christians. Um, rather he is speaking of someone who's the conflict within the wrong side has won the sinful side has won and since it has won now when you deal with your fellow Christians it's not going to be pretty because within your own heart sin has won And then what, you're going to be nice and peaceful and loving to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, probably not. The practice of war, he describes it rather graphically. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You want something, but you don't get it. We have to be careful here. The language is so violent that we might say, well, that's not me. Okay, I I don't know who James is talking about, but he's certainly not talking about me. Um, But remember what Jesus said about the commandments? That if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. That if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery. And what James said in chapter 2, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. You are a law breaker. So what might be considered to us insignificant? No biggie. Uh, James would say, uh, yeah, I think that's part of the conflict. That's part of the cause of why there is, in fact, conflict within the church. If you think about it, how are wars reported to us? Usually in terms of numbers, numbers of casualties, which in some ways um, 
numb is not the right word, but they, it, it sort of desensitizes us and it, it becomes academic rather than this is something terrible. I'm sure you've heard at one time or another a reporter say, well, only X number of people were killed. <laughs> only? The fact that someone was killed is in fact something quite terrible. The person that was killed was somebody's brother or sister, father or mother, son or daughter. Their lives have value. The second symptom is that prayers are not answered. If you look at verse number two again, the second part of the verse, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James moves from our relationship to others to a relationship within ourselves. And finally, we'll see in a few minutes our relationship with God. In each case, the symptoms may be different, but the diagnosis is the same. The King James uses the word lusts. Uh, others use passions. The, the NIV, I think, has sort of watered it down by referring to it as wrong motives. But what are wrong motives? Selfish ambition, that's in chapter 3. And selfish ambition, he says, will cause a person's prayer to go unanswered. Now, is James speaking of a particular prayer, or is he speaking of all prayers? Um, Stop and think a minute. We need to think of the book of James as a whole. Has James spoken about asking God for anything in terms of prayer? Back in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In the midst of the conflicts within ourselves and with our brothers and sisters and with non-believers, we need heavenly wisdom, which God and God alone can give. But too often, James reminds us, we don't get that wisdom because we don't ask for that wisdom. We assume that we've got it figured out and we will know what is the right path to take. Selfish ambition and self-centeredness have caused us to forget that God, in fact, is the source of heavenly wisdom. We've been doing it on our own for so long that we have forgotten that God is the source of such wisdom. It could be that in the midst of life, and the conflicts and the chaos, that we have tried and failed to get wisdom. So then we then turn to God and say, Lord, Father, please give me wisdom. And he doesn't. And they're like, okay, I get the first part where I was trying to do it on my own. But now I'm turning to you, Father, and asking you for wisdom, and why won't you give me wisdom? Well, James says, because you ask for wrong, with the wrong motives. It isn't as though you genuinely want heavenly wisdom. You, in fact, want it so that you win. You get whatever it is you want that which satisfies your lusts or your pleasures. Yeah, you want heavenly wisdom? Not really. What you want is to win. 
I'm reminded uh, hearing an interview, someone talking about social media, how that uh, in social media, the issue is not what is right and what is wrong. The issue is who's winning. And oftentimes in our prayer lives, that's, that's what's happening. We ask God for something because we want to win. We want to come out on top. We are so self-centered. We have selfish ambition that even when we do the right thing, asking God for wisdom, we do it for the wrong reasons. Now, motives are a deeply personal matter and in fact something I think that oftentimes we don't even understand about ourselves. We think that we are asking with the right motives when in fact we may not. Why are we asking God for wisdom? is something we need to ask ourselves. Now we come to a harsh verse, as though it hasn't been harsh up to this point. Verse number four. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's been dealing with the symptoms thus far the conflicts between believers, the conflicts within ourselves, the fact that God, we don't turn to God, and when we do, we do it for the wrong reason. Now he deals with, in fact, the cause. Whether we recognize it or not, I would say that all problems, all problems have their root cause in a wrong relationship with God. Our relationship with God is off. It's wrong. And here in in verse number four, James uses two uh, metaphors to describe this dysfunction. The one is marital and the other is political. You adulterous people. Now, on the face of it, we might think that James is speaking literally because he spoke about lusts, okay, about your pleasures, that that's what he's talking about. Um, No, I don't think so. The word used is literally adulteresses. It's feminine, women who have committed adultery. And again, you're like, well, James is just like Paul. He's a misogynist. He's, he's against women. No, not at all. What he is doing is using a metaphor that is found in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It is the relationship between God and his people Jesus Christ and his bride. Okay. God called Israel. He was their husband. They were his bride. We saw that in Ezekiel. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the bridegroom. God has chosen a bride for his son. So we are the bride. We are God's people. And when we are unfaithful, then, in fact, we are guilty of adultery. What we find here is what we saw in chapter 1, being in two minds, a foot in each camp, that we have an intimate relationship with God. And what is more intimate than marriage? We have an intimate relationship with God. In the meantime, we're sleeping with the world. 
And then he will, we'll see in a minute, speaking of friendship with the world, which stands in opposition to God, and then claiming to be God's friend. More on this in a bit. Adultery is a metaphor found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the relationship between God and his people. As I said, God has chosen a bride for himself with all the passion and intimacy that that involves. What it implies, a relationship between a husband and his wife. God is the husband and we are the wife, we are the bride. And the passion of God is seen in the fact that Jesus was willing to come and die for his bride. What is the bride price? What is the groom going to give for the price of his bride? He will give himself, he will give his life. But as we've seen in the Old Testament, I would say in the New Testament as well, the bride is unfaithful. Imagine the bridegroom gives all, and in the meantime, she's sleeping around. She's promiscuous. She's not faithful to her husband. As I said, these are harsh words. But you can't be double-minded. You can't say, God is my father, and I love my father, and he loves me. And in the meantime, metaphorically, you're sleeping with the world. And then he talks about friendship and being an enemy, and this can be seen as a political statement. Imagine that you have two states that are involved in a conflict. They decide it's not worth killing each other, so they come to an agreement, they have a treaty. But if one or both sides breaks the treaty, then in fact that which, you know, we used to be enemies, and then maybe we didn't become friends, but let's say we became friends, we signed a treaty, but then one breaks it or they both break it and they're enemies again. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a friend and an enemy at the same time. We were God's enemies. Jesus came and gave his life that we might become his people, his children, his friends. We leave the enemy's camp. We come to God's camp. But what happens when we say, in fact, I am a child of God, he is my father, but then we are, we are friends with God's enemy, that is the world, that which stands in opposition to God's rule. We're being double-minded. We're saying I'm God's friend and I'm a friend of the world. And James is telling us, yeah, that doesn't work. That cannot be If we think that, by the way, we deceive ourselves. We're not fooling anybody except ourselves. Okay, now we come to verse number five. And I I will confess, even before we read it, this is a difficult verse. Um, Let's read it. Or do you think uh, think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? It's a difficult verse because if you look in the NIV, it has two alternative readings Um, you know James is not quoting something from the Old Testament there's there's no passage that says this Um, 
we would expect that. We might even allow him a paraphrase, you know, to paraphrase something from the Psalms or from the prophets. Um, I think what James is doing is giving us a summary of what the scriptures, that is for him, the Old Testament, teach. And what they teach is don't be inconsistent. Don't be inconsistent. If we follow the emphasis of his argument, being double-minded, faith without works, a tongue that blesses and curses, heavenly wisdom versus that of the devil, friendship with the world, being intimate with God. James says that the spirit of God, which God put in you, at the same time, you're driven by envy. Envy is driven by self-ambition. The presence of the Spirit of God within us is incompatible. It is absolutely incompatible with selfish self-centeredness. And here again, we have another contrast. Oh, I have the Spirit of God with me. But what drives you, what motivates you, is in fact your own selfish ambition. And this is not appropriate. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, in verses 6 through 10, we have the way of grace. If we understand verse number 5 to mean that our spirits are so sinful, even though they are the spirits that God gave us, or that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, in a sense, cohabits with our sinful desires, um, Either way, it's a mess. And we might lose heart. But then we have verse number six. He did this in chapter two, by the way. In verse number 13, after speaking about breaking the law, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And here he has a word of comfort again. Look at verse number six. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is, by the way, from Proverbs 3.34. What this tells us is that God is tirelessly on our side. He always has more grace for us. He always has more and more and more to give. Whatever we may try to forfeit, by putting ourselves first, we cannot forfeit our salvation. There is always more grace. And we, will, we need to understand that God's grace is more than sufficient. But we do have a responsibility. The God who says, here is my grace, and here's more grace, and even more grace, is the same God who says, here are my commands. These are the things you're supposed to do. And by the way, what he says in verse number six, we'll see again in verse number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. By the way, this shouldn't surprise us because hopefully I've made it clear by now over the years that first of all comes grace and then comes law. God delivers Israel in the Exodus and then he takes them to Sinai. He doesn't give them the 10 commandments in Egypt 
And they're like, oh, let's be good people. Let's keep God's law. And then we will be delivered. He graciously delivers them. And then he tells them, okay, now you're free. Now you're my people. This is how you're supposed to live. And James tells us by quoting from Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud. It gives grace to the humble. The humble person is the one who acknowledges his or her need of grace. They are not self-centered. They have an intense need of God's grace. And, but if they're humble, why do they get more grace? It would seem that the person who's self-centered, who's really gone off the tracks, they're the ones who are in need of grace. Well, it is because we recognize our need of grace. That God gives us grace. You remember how the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, begins? It's the foundation of the whole sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If we do not acknowledge our poverty, why would we turn to God for anything? It is because of God's grace that he now gives us commands. And in what follows, we have ten commands. No less than ten commands that James gives us. They're all imperatives. You may remember that I said when we began in the book of James, I think there are 50 imperatives in 104 verses. Well, there are 10 of them right here in which he is telling his readers what they should do. So follow along, if you would, as I read verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There are ten commands. I think we could put them in four headings. The first is active allegiance. And then we will see cultivating a relationship Finally, no, purification and then genuine repentance. But verse number seven, submit yourselves then to God. Submit has become sort of a a dirty word in in the church, certainly in this country in the last hundred or so years. Um... I think we don't like the word. I think that's why it's become a dirty word. We don't like the idea that we have to submit. Um, I think our, our position is more like, you're not the boss of me. You know, don't tell me what to do. And if I submit, then I'm saying, well, in fact, you are the boss of me. Um, I also think that we see submission as, oh, now I stop doing anything. I, I surrender. I give up. I'm submitting. And now I, I just will be passive. So for the rest of the conflict, the duration of the war, I'm going to be a prisoner of war. I'm going to be on the sideline. I'm not going to be engaged at all. Um, yeah, this is not what submission means. Francis Schaeffer used to speak of active passivity. And he used the example of Mary when the archangel Gabriel came to her. And he, he told her that she would have a son the Holy One who would be called the Son of God. And what did Mary say? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That is, I am actively. I choose to be the Lord's servant. May it be done to me 
passivity, active passivity. We can't simply be passive, we can't be simply active. There, is bo- there are both components in which we actively say, I will do what is right, and yet recognize God's work in our lives. It might be helpful to consider how the word submit is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, I'll just mention a couple. The first one that comes to mind is obviously Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Um, Whenever I read this passage in a wedding, uh, again, I had it read during our wedding, uh, I want the verse before that to be read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Most people don't like the, you know, submit, wives submit to your husband. Now, we're to submit to each other. But what does that mean? We do it out of reverence for Christ. We do it as to the Lord. This is, I think, emphasized in Romans chapter 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. It, in fact, cannot submit to God's law. That is to say, if we are disobedient, we, in fact, are not submitting because we cannot submit because we are being disobedient. To use the language of verse number four, a few verses before this, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. There is hostility to God, and there is the impossibility of submission. But we are to submit to God. Secondly, we are to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, If some people think submission is too passive, some people think that resisting is too active. Um, We're supposed to do both. Um, What James has in mind is, in fact, manning the defenses, knowing that the enemy's pressure will be unrelenting. We will constantly be under fire, and we are to stand firm. What Peter writes in his first epistle is helpful here. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So we are to stand firm. That's what it means to resist the devil. We are to stand firm in our obedience. What about the business about he will flee from you? For some reason, as a younger person, that was always in my mind. What about him fleeing? Well, consider the temptation of Jesus. That while he resisted, he stood firm in the face of the attack. The devil left him. Satan left him. This is what James sees as a result of standing firm. Then in verse number eight, we are to deliberately cultivate fellowship with God. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Well, I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound right to me. It seems that in fact God should draw near to me and then I will draw near to him. Um, But we are told that God gives grace. In verse number six, he gives grace to the humble, those who walk the path of obedience. So the language of drawing near to God is very Old Testament. And remember, James is the first book in the New Testament to be written. All they have of scripture is the Old Testament. And so the metaphors, the language comes from the Old Testament. 
So we are to draw near to God. This means we are to worship God. We are to bow before him. We are, in fact, to worship him. And it doesn't just happen. We don't just sort of drift into worshiping God. It is something that we must, in fact, cultivate in public prayer and private prayer, in public worship and private worship. We are to use what God has appointed as a means to draw near to him, including prayer. Zechariah 1.3, we read, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In Malachi chapter 3, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Repentance is the key. Turning our back on the world and turning to God our Father. And in the commands that follow, we have the language of repentance as well as worship. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, this is very Old Testament language. The washing of water, or with water of the hand, is something that the priests were to do. And in fact, uh, the average person, the average Jew was to do as well. It had ritual significance. It didn't wash away sins, but it was to signify something truly important. It was a symbol of a pure heart. We find this time and time again in the book of Psalms. Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. In Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession after he is confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Psalm 73, where the psalmist despairs over the wicked prospering, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. We might have liked it if, if James could have said, as it says in the scriptures, this is what you're supposed to do. If it said, you know, Psalm 73, anyone? You know, Psalm 24. But instead, he does something rather unsettling. He refers to his readers, that's us, by the way, as sinners, as you double-minded. It's not, he's not engaging in name-calling here. What is a sinner? Someone who disobeys God. And who is double-minded? Someone who has a foot in both worlds. Someone who believes but does not act. Someone who blesses but curses. Someone who has divine wisdom as well as wisdom from Satan. True worship is, I will be single-minded. I'm not going to be double-minded. By God's grace, I will be obedient. I will do what he calls me to do. That'd be great, wouldn't it, if we did that? So what James speaks of next, I think, is truly important. 
he points to repentance. Verse number nine. If we were to take the language, by the way, earlier of wars and fightings seriously, um, as we saw last week, shalom, peace is the way things ought to be. Um, Yeah, repentance seems to be in order. When we have conflicts, when we have wars, killings, covetings, do not describe the way things ought to be, um, we find out that we, in fact, are part of the problem. We're not the solution. We're the problem. So the call to wash and purify, to stop disobeying, you sinners, stop being double-minded, then there is, in fact, the call to repent, to turn away from what is wrong, to turn to what is right. Um, And it's more than simply saying, well, my bad. I'm sorry. James mentions three things we are to do. We are to grieve. That is, I would say, inwardly. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament that we find this word used. The intent is a sense of what is it that I have done? What have I done? I've done something that is wrong. I should not have done that. And we are to mourn. I would say this is outwardly. We are to wail. This is outwardly as well. To grieve inwardly, to say, I shouldn't have done that. I can't believe I did that. Is not enough. There have to be outward expressions of repentance by the way, that's what the whole book of James is about. It isn't, oh, I'm a Christian, I've got Jesus in my heart. It's how are you living it out? In the same way that faith is seen in works. Repentance is seen in grieving, that's good, but also in mourning and in wailing. It was suggested to me some years ago that when we have the prayer of confession in our service, that we should hand out dust and ashes to everyone in the congregation as visible signs of repentance. Because if we're not careful, as Dave leads us in the prayer of confession, we're just saying words. We're just reading words. We might need a healthy dose of wailing and mourning. I was about to say it gets worse, but it it gets a bit darker. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And this is the one that always seems to give me trouble because I enjoy laughing. I like to laugh. What's wrong with laughing? Well, there are things we can laugh at and there are other things we should not laugh at, such as being sinners and being double-minded. I can't believe I did that silly thing. I can't believe I did that. And sort of laugh and chuckle to ourselves about it. The teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In Luke chapter 6, woe to you who laugh now, for you will weep and mourn. If we are to take our sinfulness seriously, and if we are in fact to take our double-mindedness seriously, We are to turn from it. We are to grieve. We are to mourn and wail. We are not to be comfortable with sin in our lives. The reality is, I think we will always in some way be double-minded. It's like doubt. 
Doubt is believing and not believing at the same time. It, that's always there with us. We're not perfect and we won't be till Jesus comes back. But we need to recognize that that's not the way things should be and we shouldn't be comfortable with it. It should be really a serious matter to us. The tenth command is humble yourselves before the Lord. We saw in verse number six, he gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble person says, I am so in need of God's grace. The person who is insistently self-centered, and I want to say insistently because I think being human means by definition that we are self-centered, but the person who is insistently self-centered feels no need of God's grace. In fact, they feel need of pretty much nothing from God. But we are, in fact, to humble ourselves, acknowledge our need of God's grace, get rid of that insistence that we are the center of the universe, and to recognize that we are in need of God's grace. And what happens if you look at verse number 10? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Just when we were beginning to think that it was a lost cause. These 10 things, like, James, I hear you, it sounds good, but I'm not sure I can do that. We are in need of grace. Humble ourselves before God, recognize our need of grace, and he will lift us up. Recognize that we are poor in spirit, and we will always be poor in spirit until Jesus comes back. We are always in desperate need of God's grace. And we are told in recognizing this, God will lift us up. James said at the beginning of this passage in verse 6, he gives us more grace. God is so gracious, he is tirelessly on our side even when we do things we should not do, when we are double-minded, when we curse with the same mouth we use to bless, when we say that we are God's friend, we are the bride of Christ, the intimacy of a husband and a wife, it's my relationship with God, and then we're sleeping with the world. God doesn't give up on us. He gives more grace. We need to acknowledge our need of grace and humble ourselves. And he will give us grace upon grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, what James had to say is hard for us to hear. I think primarily because it's true. Thank you how gracious you are. Your sinful, double-minded children wander to and fro, not looking to you for wisdom, but then when we do, it's so that we can win whatever situation we're in. But you never give up on us. We are so gracious. 
are grateful. I mean, you are gracious. We are grateful that you are so gracious. You never quit. May we take to heart the things that James wrote centuries ago. Recognize our weakness, our need of grace, and humble ourselves before you. Thank you for loving us in spite of it all. Thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, and making it all possible. Now as we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.